Chuck Templeton was one of the most gifted young evangelists in the 1940s. He accompanied Billy Graham and Jack Wurtson, Dave's dad, on a trip to England in March and April of 1946. Chuck was the most gifted communicator in the group, but when he saw a child die in his mother's arm from starvation simply because there was not rain, he decided that he could no longer buy the idea that there was a loving Father in Heaven that cared for the world. He left the ministry and became a popular media personality in Canada. Faced with the problem of evil in the world, was this the right choice? Today, as we turn to the last book in the Bible, our study leader Dave Wurtson begins our study talking about the fact that we are now living in a period of history when God's heart will is not done on earth as it is in heaven. Revelation helps us know this, and it also predicts a time when God will intervene and set up His perfect kingdom on this planet. This is the real story of Star Wars. Now let's join Dave for a study titled, The Vindication of the Two Martyrs. We happen to live in a time period where as evil takes place throughout the world, where a lot of crazy things happen. For example, in the Lord Jesus' prayer that he taught us to pray, we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, and you've all repeated it over and over again, on earth as it is in heaven. What I want you to realize is that when Jesus was teaching us to pray like that, he was calling our attention to the fact that there's a heart will of God. The heart will of God is love forever, it's peace forever, it's life forever. It's joy forever. It's all the things you could ever dream of in the very depth of your soul as far as the reality of what happiness should be for us. That's going to be present for us forever and ever. But right now, God has allowed a time period where he's allowed a horrible rebellion to take place on planet Earth. In fact, that rebellion was so intense that the spotless, sinless, perfect Lamb of God, Jesus, was brutally beat up. The political rulers of his day took him and slashed him and they whipped him and they punched him and they mocked him. The religious leaders of Jesus' day, and it wasn't just Jewish leadership, any false religion that's turned away from the, the promise of the Messiah and a commitment to Jesus, that hierarchy of religious uh, pride and jealousy just cooperated in handing him over and, and, in, and, and themselves beating him up and there at the cross they mocked him. Why did God allow that? Because God loves you. You see, God wants to woo you. God wants you to come to himself. That's what this time period right now is about. It's not a time for the vengeance and the anger of God to break forth against evil. Right now, ever since Jesus died and rose again, and since he's ascended into heaven, since he poured out his Holy Spirit upon us, you're living in one of the most exciting, powerful times of all of history. It's an age of grace. It's an age where God allows his people sometimes to be butchered. Sometimes he allows his people to, to suffer insults and criticism. And so when you ask the question, where is God when that's happening? What you need to realize is that God is right here. And what he's doing, the fact that he doesn't just breathe fire out and incinerate those crazy people and the chaos. And as you listen to the psychologists and the experts in our culture try to explain why a person does things like that, don't just buy the fact that there's chemical imbalances and that there's, that there's problems psychologically in families and stuff. Evil is when you concentrate on murderous violence. When someone begins to be captivated by serial killers, 
When somebody begins to fantasize about what it would be like to take life, there's a source for that. It's called Satan. It's called the adversary. It's called the devil, which means the slanderer. Jesus himself said that he was a murderer from the beginning. One thing that we should understand from all this is that we are being hit in the face with evil. We are having evil just just come right up in visible form, not camouflaging itself anymore and just clobbering us with it. And I want you to wake up to that. I want you to understand how evil, evil really is. Evil isn't just something that that you can explain and you can get a handle on and someday psychiatrists at Harvard University are going to figure it out. In fact, some of the worst evil that's ever been done in the world has been done by those that are the most intellectual, those that are the most trained. The Germans in World War II took intellectualism to the farthest degree that it had ever been taken in all of history. And they used their intellectualism, they used their ability to rationalize to kill six million people, brutally. They didn't just go in and start randomly shooting, but in World War II, there was brilliant intellectuals, the engineers that made plans for ovens and made plans for trains, made plans for an incredible, great big industrial operation to kill people. That's how evil, evil really is. What's God going to do about it? What I want to share with you right now, God is waiting. Because it's the age of grace. God comes alongside of you and right now, if you've wandered away from him, if you've moved away from a commitment to him and you haven't been walking close with him, he loves you back to himself. You're gathered together among the people of God and in this group, there's the presence of the Holy Spirit. And where is God? He is trying to cause you to love him, to devote your entire heart to him. But I want you to know as you ask those questions, will God always let evil just rampage? Is God weak? Is he impotent? Unbelievers conclude, well, there must not be a good God because he's not powerful enough to stop, to stop things like this. It's one of the heaviest questions for biblical faith. How can God be all-powerful when evil seems to just do its thing? Well, the book of Revelation wrestles with that. The book of Revelation tells it that there's going to come a future time when God isn't just going to wait, when God isn't just going to sit back. It's going to not be a time of grace. It's going to be the time when God begins to powerfully witness and declare and then execute his judgment against wickedness. Revelation chapter 11 introduces us to a scene where John, our apostle, who is revealing to us events that are going to take place so you can get oriented as we open up to Revelation chapter 11. We probably moved into the final three and a half years of the tribulation period. The book of Daniel predicted that at the end of time, there would be a seven-year period. That seven-year period, according to Daniel chapter 9, would begin with a horrible, and yet he would appear at first to be a very brilliant, good, the hope of all mankind, this very brilliant world ruler that would step out on the pages of history, and he would promise security a covenant of security, a covenant of peace with a reestablished nation of Israel. We live in a society, in a world where there is a reestablished nation of Israel. When Bible teachers taught what I'm teaching you a hundred years ago, they did it completely by faith. There wasn't any nation of Israel. In fact, for most people's minds, there wasn't a chance in a million years that there ever would be another state of Israel. But man, we, every single day, we see newscasts that, in, that include the state of Israel. What Revelation describes is that eventually that state of Israel is going to put their confidence in a great Western leader. 
And he will promise them safety and security. And for three and a half years, for three and a half years, he will deliver on that promise. The world will seem like it's entering into a utopian era. The world will seem like it's, everything's coming together and man's material prosperity is going to explode. There are going to be a few skirmishes, a few you know, shakings of what's going on in, in nature. But for the most part, it's going to be three and a half years of peace. But in the middle of that three and a half year period, Antichrist is going to turn against God's people. He's going to break his covenant with Israel. He's going to demand the total worship of himself. And secularism is going to grip this entire world. Now it's at that point when the world powerfully divides. We learned in Revelation chapter 7 about 144,000 Jews that will be sealed by the Lord. And right after they're sealed, we see a gigantic multitude of people that are in heaven. Those 144,000 in the book of Revelation are presented as loyal, faithful, true witnesses that begin to stand against Antichrist. They begin to proclaim the truth about Messiah Jesus. And thousands upon thousands of Jewish people throughout the world, rather than cursing Jesus, they begin to respond to him in faith. And through their response in faith, they cause millions upon millions of other people to believe in the Messiah Jesus as well. And the lines are drawn. And it's those that believe in Messiah Jesus versus those that believe in secularism and life as we know it just now. And no hope for eternity, just hope in mankind. And the pride and the, the materialism of that. And that is going to be the period where these lines are being drawn, where we open up to Revelation chapter 11, we see two incredibly powerful witnesses that rise forth. Before Jesus came the first time, the Lord appeared to a man named Zacharias and said, you are going to give birth to the man that Malachi promised would come. And Elizabeth, his wife, gave birth to John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a prophet that wore sackcloth. He wore his camel's hair. He uh, ate wild you know, honey and wild locusts. He lived out in the wilderness and he called the children of Israel to turn away from their sin. He was a powerful preacher. One day he pointed out the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. And John the Baptist was the Elijah figure that would come. In fact, one day Jesus talked things over with his disciples. And they were saying, how could the Messiah be here yet? Is not Elijah to come first? And Jesus said, if you will receive it, Elijah has already come. Now, it looks in the early chapters of John, when John's asked, are you Elijah? And he kind of hedges a little bit. The reason he's doing that is because he wasn't the Elijah that was being expected by the political rulers and the religious rulers of his day. John the Baptist wasn't here to initiate a political revolt, a political kingdom to initiate. He wasn't here to do that. Instead, he was here to announce the first coming of Jesus. But Jesus said that he came in the spirit of Elijah. He spoke like Elijah. He acted like Elijah. He had the same anointing from God's Holy Spirit as Elijah. Now what Revelation tells us is that before Jesus comes in Revelation 19, at the end of the tribulation period, that there's again going to come an Elijah-like prophet and also a Moses-like prophet. It's interesting that in the Old Testament, Moses, at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, is just taken up in a high mountain, and then God took him. And no one ever found his body. 
Elijah, you all know the story of Elijah when Elisha, his sidekick, followed along with Elijah and he was trying to get the, you know, the blessing of the, of the gift of the Spirit from his mentor. And suddenly Elijah, we've all sung about it, swing low, sweet chariot, coming forward to carry me home. It's been just part of our entire culture handed down to us. We know about the story of Elijah being caught up in a whirlwind. And if anybody should understand what it means to be caught up in a whirlwind, it's Texans. Man, we, we know all about that, right? Well, the scripture said that Elijah was taken up to the presence of God. And that produced an expectation within Judaism. You can read about it in some of the second century writings, in the first century writings of Judaism. They would talk about this ultimate coming of two prophets, Moses and Elijah. And they will herald the coming of the Messiah. Well, that's the background. As John the Apostle is writing in 95 AD, he has all this kind of a background where he has Jewish people that are expecting an Elijah-like prophet or maybe even Elijah himself or a Moses-like prophet or maybe even Moses himself coming just before their Messiah comes to inaugurate their kingdom. Well, the Revelation chapter 11, with that as a background, introduces us to these two witnesses. And I believe that they are literal prophets, just like John the Baptist was a real man. In other words, if you were here 2,000 years ago and you would have met with Zechariah and Elizabeth, you could have seen baby John growing up. You could have seen him, you know, go out in the wilderness. You could have seen him preaching to thousands of people coming down from Jerusalem. I believe that Revelation follows that same kind of fulfillment, only now the predictions are about things that are still in the future. So as they open up to Revelation chapter 11, we have John, who's just been newly commissioned. At the end of chapter 10, he was, he was recommissioned with the gift of prophecy. It says this, I was given a reed. That would be, you could say in modern English, I was given a, um, like a yardstick. I was given a yardstick, like a measuring rod. And I was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the worshipers that are there. But exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. And I will give power to my two witnesses. And we'll go on from there in a minute. Let's just talk first of all about this measuring. What about the measuring of this temple? Well, if you know Old Testament prophecies, you'll understand that the prophets love, like a prophet like Amos, a prophet like Ezekiel. And when Nehemiah rebuilt the walls and the, of, of the city of Jerusalem, the way that they would initiate those projects is just the way all of you carpenters initiate a project. If you're a carpenter, if you don't have a rule, you're not going to get anywhere. Every one of you that like to build things, you need to begin by measuring things out. Those of us that really aren't into that, you know, man, we can have our rule gone for months on end. We never miss it. But every one of you that are builders, every one of you that know what construction's about, every single day of your life, you use your measure. And what it is, it's a symbol that it's time to build. What the angel is telling John, he's saying, John, God is going to build his people. He's measuring out the temple. Now, in the book of Revelation, John likes to have a lot of things going at once. Because I believe that there's a literal temple that's going to be rebuilt during the tribulation period. But so far in the book of Revelation, the temple has been the temple of God. In chapter 4, we were caught up into the throne room of God. In chapter 5, we witnessed the throne room of God. Periodically through the book, we've been caught up into a heavenly throne room, which is presented in the book of Revelation so far as God's holy temple. 
And we've been exposed right to the Holy of Holies because we're now God's children. And the book of Hebrews says that all the barriers have been blown away. And you can walk in and we can actually see what's going on in the Holy of Holies. We've been able to enter into the secret councils of God. Now remember in the Old Testament tabernacle, there was the Holy of Holies, then the Holy Place. Then there was a court of the priests where only the priests could go. There was a court of the Jewish men where only the Jewish men could go. There was a court of the Jewish women where only the Jewish women could go. And then there was a court of the Gentiles where only Gentiles. They couldn't go into those inner circles. And what it shows us is that the inner core are those that are acceptable to God. Those that have been related to him. When John is told by the angel to measure out, he's told to measure out the inner place, the place of access to God. And it's a way for John to be told that God is going to seal his people. God is going to put his protective hand around his people. I want you to know that that's true in our age today. You see, the Bible doesn't promise us that we're never going to suffer persecution. The Bible doesn't promise us that we're never going to suffer from illness, that nothing bad is ever going to happen to us. It doesn't promise us that. But one thing I want you to know is that Ephesians 1 says that we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. And if you have Christ in your heart, then when you hear events like the Wedgwood Baptist slaying, an unbeliever hears that and it throws them into horrible crisis. And unbelievers say, man alive, there's no place safe anymore. No place you can go. Man, you can go to church and you can get blown into who knows where. And it puts tremendous terror into their heart. I want you to know the book of Revelation saying that what happened didn't catch our heavenly daddy by surprise. That the horrible bloodbath and the horrible violence for the people that experienced it was over in a few seconds. And then they're enjoying eternal life and love in the arms of Jesus forever and ever. Do you believe that? That's what your faith is calling us to believe. That's where we put our life. That's what this story is about. That's what the gospel message is about. You heard testimony after testimony, young person, young seminary graduate saying, it hasn't changed anything about our commitment to Jesus, except intensify it. We're not going to stop worshiping him. We're not going to stop praising him. We're not going to doubt him. In fact, we're even more solid in our conviction that this is the only hope. This is the only answer. That's what Revelation 11 is saying, is that God is measuring out. And even as these saints experience great persecution during this final onslaught, the last part of the tribulation is one of Satan's last gasps to try to tear down the kingdom of God. And what our text is saying is this angel is going to measure out the temple court In other words, God is going to build, what he's saying here, to make it literal for us, he's saying God's going to build his holy people. God's going to have a whole group of people that are related to him, that are close to him, those that are truly worshiping him. In the Old Testament, those that would come to that inner sanctuary, those that would be there on the holy days, they were the ones that had Yahweh, the Old Testament true creator God, at the core of their being. Today, in this age of grace, you're part of those people, that multitude that have chosen to worship God in spirit and in truth. And God has measured you off. And just like God is building our lives, building our community of faith, causing people to respond and to believe in him, that's going to happen even in the worst time of human history at the end of the tribulation period. So I believe that when John is told to go and measure, that he's told it's a symbol of God saying, John, I'm going to build my people. 
And I'm going to protect them and I'm going to seal them off. And I'm going to keep building this community of faith. And even though Antichrist rampages against it, they're not going to be able to win. Now, how do we know whether what I'm telling you is true? Because the rest of the chapter is going to, is going to flesh that out for us. We're going to actually see two witnesses that are given this protection for a while. Suddenly they're cut off. But is that the end of the story? In other words, if a Christian that loves Jesus loses their physical life, has Satan won? And let's see how Revelation 11 answers that. It said that they will trample on the holy city for 42 months. The book of Daniel predicted that for three and a half years, God would allow the holy city of Jerusalem and those his people to be trampled upon. He said that there will be a time in which it looks like the forces of darkness are going to win. It was a three and a half year period. It's very interesting, as we look through history, that in the age of the Maccabees, about 200 years, about 167 through 164, about a three and a half year period, God led Antiochus Epiphanes, set up his idol in the Holy of Holies, in, this, in the temple of Jerusalem, the second temple. He allowed the Jewish people to be butchered by these Syrians. But after three and a half years, Judas Maccabees rose up, and the Maccabean armies destroyed the armies of Syria, Antiochus himself died in a death and ignominy and shame, and God's holy temple, the true worship that was present before Jesus came, that second temple, the temple that Jesus himself came to, was cleansed in about three and a half years. It's interesting, in, in the siege of Jerusalem in the first century, it lasted from about 67 to 70. The Jewish war against the Romans was about 67 270, and then the temple was burned and destroyed. Those three-year periods are very significant. And evidently at the end of time that God's going to allow evil to rampage against his holy place and against those that believe in him for about three and a half years or 42 months. And those months, if you want to get it really exact, a prophetic, you can figure out that a prophetic year is a 360-day year. And so as you have the days given in the book of Revelation, you have the months given as 42 months, and then you're given another figure, which is a time, times and a half. If you use a 360-day year, you'll see how all of those statistics line up just exactly right. And God is measuring out. It's only going to be able to last this long because I'm still the king. I'm still in control. So he raises up these two witnesses. Let's look at the empowerment of these two witnesses. So I will give power to my two witnesses. And they will prophesy for the 42-month period, only it's going to be 1,260 days. They'll be clothed in sackcloth. In the ancient world, you wore sackcloth when you were mourning. Why would a prophet wear that? A prophet would wear that because he's mourning over the fact that evil is winning, the fact that God's people are being martyred, the fact that God's people are being destroyed. So these prophets are coming with a message that's mourning the destruction of God's people. But the sackcloth also means that they're mourning over the fact that evil continues to resist God and that many of their unbelieving friends that they're trying to reach continue to harden in their, in their animosity towards, towards them and towards the message of God. It says, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. In the book of Zechariah, two olive trees are presented in the book of Zechariah, they are the priest Joshua 
and the, the political leader Zerubbabel that were going to rebuild that second temple that I just told you about that was desecrated by Antiochus Epiphanes. Here in the book of Revelation, John picks up the imagery that in the book of Zechariah represented two great deliverers that would rebuild the people of God way back in the period before Jesus came. John picks up that same imagery and says God at the end of time is going to raise up two new olive trees. And they're going to be lampstands. You've already had that figure. We as the church, during the church age, are the lampstands. Remember the seven lamps that shine brightly into the world? And Jesus talked about how he's walking through the lampstands. The church and their witness in the world is represented as a lamp. For an Israeli, also the olive is like uh, the symbol of prosperity, the symbol of joy, the symbol of what life is all about. You would have olive oil, you know, on the, on your table and you eat it with your bread. It's just a really common thing, much more common than in our own culture. And it was a symbol of things that are the way that things ought to be. And what it's saying that these witnesses are the ones that are expressing the truth that God can bring life. He can bring vitality. He can bring what the Hebrews would call shalom. So we have these two olive trees and these two lampstands and they're standing before the Lord of all the earth. What that means is the idea of standing before a king in the ancient world means that you're there to do what he wants you to do. In the ancient world, you would have courtesans and servants that would stand before the king. And when the king gave his command, man, you would hit it. You were gone out there to do what the king wanted you to do. These prophets, these two witnesses are presented as standing not before some earthly king, but before the king of all the earth. I want you to know that because you've received Jesus as your savior... Just like these witnesses, you stand before the Lord of all the earth. One of the things that some of you really need to get together, your Christianity is not working. You know, you try to use your Christianity to beat your sin, and you try to use your Christianity to try to help things to work out right, and it just falls flat in its face. And I'm going to tell you why. Because you can't use Jesus to accomplish your own ends. Jesus is a great king. We have no idea who Jesus is. That's one of the things you need to get from this book. Jesus is the king of kings. You stand in his presence. It doesn't make a blood of difference what I want to communicate today, what I think is important. I don't have any more hope in my human strength. All the chemistry I studied and, and all the biology and all that stuff, making good grades in college and science, man, it doesn't give me any answers at all to tell you this morning to try to give you hope when this terrible crisis happens. But you know, if I stand in the presence of the Lord, And I humbly submit to him. And as I read his word, as I let his spirit become my teacher, then incredibly, powerfully eternal things start to happen. That truth begins to sweep across our lives. And what the Holy Spirit does in this group, if you'll open yourself up to the movement of his spirit, right here in this group, he'll start to bring things to your mind that will sustain you this week, that will give you insight into how to to really glorify God this, this coming week. But you've got to stand in the presence of your king. Some of you, you want to be the king and use Jesus like a genie. That's not going to work. It will not fly. One thing I want you to learn from the book of Revelation is God is no genie. You don't rub Aladdin's lamp and have the genie jump out and tell the genie what you want him to do. God is God. God is a king. Revelation reveals an awesome, awesome God. A God that eventually is going to take on all of his enemies and he's going to win. And we need to be like these prophets, standing in his presence. But you know, in his presence, there's fullness of joy. We even sing that. 
If you'll learn to stand in his presence, if you'll learn to let him be the king, he's a great king. He's a loving king. He's a tender daddy. He's an ultimate savior. You're not going to lose if you stand in his presence. It's a lie in your soul for you to think that you can be in and out of this Jesus thing, for you can kind of get close to him, but then go and do your own thing all during the week. That's a lie from the pit of hell. It's destroying your marriages. It's destroying your life. It's destroying your kids. It's destroying everything. Wake up to that. You baby boomers that that are my age have the idea that this Jesus thing is like taking a good pill. That's not going to work. And I got news for you. There's a generation coming underneath. They understand. And it took me a long time for the Spirit of God to start waking me up. Because, man, I would speak to a group of the younger generation and I would hedge away from challenging them like I am you today. Saying, man, this thing could cost you your life. People get killed for following Jesus. Man, I, that's the way my dad taught me when I was a little kid. I thought it was a little bit extreme. But I got news for the baby boomers. The younger generations coming on and say, we pray to God before football games. Because we love God. And we believe God is real. And we want God to protect our fellow classmates. And we're not going to force anyone else to do. They don't have to violate their beliefs. But we want you to know that in public, on a Friday night, just not just in some private baby boomer world of religious culture, but in our real life, there's a whole generation of young people who are saying, hey, you might think this is just religion for Sunday morning, but for us, it's our life. And we're going to pray. And the baby boomers have just begun to see what the next generation is going to do. Because they're bold. They've already seen their mom and dad get divorced because they lived to have three cars and worked two jobs and never were home and never had any time to do anything with them because they just lived for things. And there's a whole generation that realized, man, that is a no-way street. No happiness there, man. A mom and dad that used Jesus just as a Sunday morning gimmick, a Sunday morning comfort pillow. They're saying, man, that doesn't work. We saw mom and dad cuss and scream at each other all during the week. Their Jesus didn't do a blasted thing for them. But we found a Jesus that's real. A Jesus that's the Savior every day of the week. A Jesus that can, that can be our King. And we're going to be committed to Him. And that's what you saw young people testifying throughout the world, through the media. That's what these witnesses are telling us. They stand in the presence of the Lord. Nothing to fool around with. This is the Creator of the universe. This is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And so this week we need to pray that we'll stand in his presence. Just like these witnesses in the tribulation period will look to the Lord for direction, we need to join with them. It says this, if anyone tries to harm them, and this is where it's quite different in verse 5. This is the last part. You wonder when God's going to exercise judgment against those that revolt against him. If anyone tries to harm them, fire goes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. These men have the power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have the power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Who does that sound like? You know who that sounds like? It sounds like Moses. When Moses went before Pharaoh, he said, Pharaoh, it's not going to rain in Egypt. And it didn't rain until God said it's going to rain again. When Moses said, the waters of the Nile, you worship the waters of the Nile, it's going to turn to blood and destroy this land. It turned to blood. Moses did real miracles in real time with a real king and brought the Egyptian empire down. Elijah, 
Ahaziah, the wicked Hebrew king, sent his servants to try to capture Elijah. And Elijah, there was fire that came down from heaven and consumed him. How many of you have raised the issue? Like, why didn't God just breathe fire out and just zap that guy before he got into that church? Anybody ask that? Sure. In the tribulation period, the age of grace is over for a lot of people. It's time for the Lord to execute as the king his justice. And these prophets are saying, they're saying when they give the truth, and the idea of the fire coming out from their mouth is their word. It's not necessarily that they breathe out fire like a dragon. But it's like when a person gives a command, just like Jesus early in the book has a sword coming out of his mouth. What it means is not that he has a literal big Roman sword, a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. But it's saying that when he gives a decree, the judgment is executed. So when these prophets predict judgment and death, it generates that because they're the representatives of the great king. And so we're going to have this great competition, Antichrist fighting against these witnesses, hating them, trying to bring them down, trying to snuff out their truth. And these powerful prophets of God, like Elijah, like Moses, standing against and standing against this world ruler. And instead of it being acted out just on the pages of, of a little country like Egypt in the ancient world, now it's going to be the entire theater of the entire planet. It's going to be wrestling with who's really going to be the king on planet Earth. Well, as often happens, it looks for a while like the Antichrist won. It says, now, when they had finished their testimony, the beast that comes out from the abyss. And that means the Antichrist, the evil one, this ultimate arch enemy of Christ, the one that's going to be a counterfeit Christ. We're learning in chapter 13. We'll study about him coming out from the abyss. The abyss stands for the abode of the demonic, for the abode of evil. That's where all this terrible immorality and violence and idolatry and pride comes from. It says, this beast that comes out from the abyss will attack them. That would be the two servants. And he will overpower them and they will kill them. Looks like God lost again. Their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom, which was a city that lived just for materialism, lived just for immorality of all kinds, heterosexual immorality, homosexual immorality, lived for terrible violence, would just butcher people that were wandering in the streets. The city of Egypt represented in the ancient world, the city of Pharaoh that stood strongly against the Lord God of heaven that Moses attacked. It says, where also their Lord was crucified. So it identifies this city as literally Jerusalem. So what it's telling us is that we have these two witnesses in the city of Jerusalem proclaiming the truth about Jesus. Antichrist has it. And he comes to the end and he snuffs out their life. And God allows them to be killed. Now notice how the people react to this. For three and a half days, just like they ministered for three and a half years or three and a half years, now they're going to be, uh, for three and a half days, they're going to be lying in the street. Men from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. In the ancient world, and it's still true today, if a body cannot be buried, it's a very shameful thing. And it's something that tears families apart. We have that in the POW situation where precious loved ones that lost soldiers in Vietnam have never been able to bury and give honor to their dead. And it's a great burden on our nation, even after so many years. The same thing's going on here. These prophets, they will not allow them to be buried. But how will the world respond? Our culture is not quite where revelation is. And we need to thank God for that. And you know why it isn't? Because of you. And because of believers that are infiltrating all of society. And as you go out this week, I want you to realize if you choose to stand in the presence of the king and be obedient to him, then you stand for what's good 
and for what's holy and for what's pure. You become a great light to your world. But I want you to know and I want you to see how evil Satan's kingdom is. Because in the in tribulation period when these witnesses are killed, look what it says. It says the inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. In other words, the world system actually has a Christmas celebration where they send gifts to one another because these prophets have been killed. In other words, these men that had presented the truth of God, these men that had preached the truth about God, they hated them so much that they killed them. One of the things that you need to realize, any time down through history, when you really stand for this book, when you really stand for Jesus, Paul tells us in this world we will have suffering. We're going to have tribulation. Jesus isn't just someone that makes your life comfortable and healthy and prosperous. Under normal conditions, if you follow Jesus' command, then you're going to be prosperous because he's a good God. But we happen to be in a war. We're in a war with the forces of the abyss, with the forces of deceitfulness and lying and violence and immorality and pride. And one of the things I want you to do is I want you to see when you rip off the clothes of this naked system, you see this horrible reality where people actually, actually celebrate the fact that one of God's servants, one of God's prophets, have been destroyed. And I want you to know, as you go out this week and you meet people, you're going to meet people that are, that are committed to evil, people that are committed to damning God, people that are committed to living way away from him, and you wonder, like, why didn't God do something? Don't ever forget, he is one day going to do something. We think about these two witnesses lying in the street. You can imagine, you know, what's going to be going through the newscast during the tribulation period. These supposed witnesses of God are destroyed in the street. And everybody is celebrating and, and looks like Antichrist is one. Boy, you can imagine how hard it was, it's going to be for people to believe during that time. And it's hard for us to believe when really bad things happen to good people and when there's the slaying of a missionary or the slaying of witnesses, we always throw up our hands. How could this ever be? Look how God answers it. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them. They stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. And that very hour, there was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people in Jerusalem were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified and they gave glory to the God of heaven. It's hard to tell whether the glory they gave to the God of heaven was because they responded, but often in the Old Testament we just have a response to God's power. Yes, we need to acknowledge God, but there's never the devotion of the heart. What's God's answer to the terrible questions that are raised about when innocent people suffer, when innocent people are murdered? What's your answer today? I want to share with you from the depths of my heart that there's a part of me that is a guy raised in the East Coast, For me to believe that there can be two guys lying in the street of Jerusalem and for three and a half days they just sit there rotting and then after three and a half days God breathes life into them and they come back to life again and then God catches them up into heaven. There's a part of me that really has a hard time believing that. And I think there's a part of you that has a hard time believing that. But I want you to know that what Mary and I have chosen to build our family on is I believe in a God that can do exactly that. You see, I believe Jesus Christ already did that. 
And I want you to really think hard about this. This is what our faith is about. This is why you need to represent him. This is why you need to believe in him. This is why all the religious pluralism is not true. You see, you happen to worship a savior. That's what Revelation's about. You worship a savior that was dead for three days. And all of his enemies rejoiced over him. They had a big party time. The Romans partied. The religious leaders partied. Everybody partied. And for three days, Jesus rotted in the grave, supposedly. But on the third day, Jesus came back to life again. And then a few months later, he was standing on the Mount of Olives and a cloud came down and took him up into heaven. You know what? I don't believe that that just happened in the symbolism of religion. I believe that it happened. I've stood on the Mount of Olives and thought about Jesus standing on that mountain. And he said, the same Jesus who was caught up into heaven is going to come back again. Do you believe that? See, that's what you need to build your life on. It's not hard for you to believe in the, the tribulation period. I've been reading commentators, man, they, they spiritualize it. And then they say, oh, but maybe it's literal. It gets so confusing. This text is hard, but it's really not that confusing. Elijah did this kind of thing in the Old Testament. I believe he did it. How about you? Moses took on the whole nation of Egypt in the Old Testament. What's the big deal about God raising up another prophet like Moses and like Elijah at the end of time and having them stand against the ultimate manifestation of evil. But I want you to see that though evil might be able to snuff out your physical life, there's going to be martyrs. And we have to realize, you know, when we first started studying the book of Revelation, remember that? When I taught you about martyrs, like in Revelation 6, I taught you about the martyrs under the throne. And I remember when I taught you that, I'm saying, like, what does this have to do with Midlothian Bible Church? Boy, how times have changed. Because the reality of the matter is, as we go out this week, and as we live in our society, we really stand for Christ. The lines are being drawn. But I want you to know, there's no need for fear. You precious dads and moms can wrap your arms around kids, and as they're crying over the murderous violence, you can say, you know, the great thing, we worship a Savior who, even when the violence of death snuffs out a life, Jesus takes us home. And you know what? Your kids understand that. And he can comfort them. There's no reason... For any little child to be afraid, afraid to go to school, afraid to go to the shopping mall, afraid to go out with friends, there's no reason why any one of you should be afraid. You know why? Because the Lord's measured you, just like he's going to measure these saints in the Old Testament. The Lord wants you to go out, just like these two witnesses. And even if we do face the ultimate sacrifice of giving our physical life, for us as believers, we have a great king who breathes new life in us. He'll take you instantly home to be with him. But he's also going to do this kind of a resurrection where he even raises your body one day and takes you to his throne room in heaven forever and ever and ever. This I believe. This is what gives me peace. This is what gives me meaning. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you so much as we look at this incredible chapter of these two powerful tribulation witnesses like Moses, like Elijah. I'd ask you, Lord, that we'll realize that the same Holy Spirit is going to be indwelling them as indwelling us this day. And I'd ask you, Lord, that that precious indwelling Holy Spirit now would use this truth from Revelation chapter 11 to give peace in hearts that are troubled, to give comfort to those that are very fearful. Lord Jesus, I just would pray that for those that are not submitting to the kingship of Jesus. I pray, Lord, that they'll submit to him. In Jesus' name we pray.